Hi, everybody. It's Michael from michaelangelocaruso.com and also the Present Like a Pro group on Facebook. I have a special guest with me on today's Talk to Me podcast. This is Riley. I hope I'm saying it right. Junty. Correct, Riley? Yeah, perfect. How, perfect. Many, how many different ways do people pronounce your name? Uh, normally, people <laughs> mess it up on the first try. <laughs> Probably thousands. I first yeah. uh, became aware of you reading about you here in the local paper, but apparently, uh, you're a well-known uh, expert on the media circuit. You've you've had huge opportunities mm -hmm. to talk to major outlets on a very sensitive topic, something that you became an expert at, perhaps accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been uh, doing media interviews for about the past two years now. So uh, it's funny that you found me just through the local newspaper in Michigan. <laughs> right, right. Well, I just moved to uh, Rochester, Michigan, and we're just now seeing some of the local stuff here. And um, you're such a good role model in the area. And, uh, and I wanted to talk to you about your situation. Before we do the big reveal here of why everybody wants to talk to you, can you set the stage for us about uh, how it was like to grow up for you and your family and um, give us some context for what turned out to be a troubled stage of life for you later on. How many siblings? Yes. I have one sibling, uh, a brother named Alex. He's a little bit older than me. Um, but it's funny because I grew up in a very traditional household. Like uh, my parents were successful. I had a big house and a dog and I was involved in extracurriculars and I was an all A student. Um, so that's why it surprised a lot of people when I started having a troubled childhood is because I had everything going for me. Um, but I, mental illness and adversity definitely doesn't discriminate no matter where you come from. And I think that's something that I've learned through my story. Right, right. So there's the big reveal, everybody, some mental illness issues. So now this is an interesting category. Most people don't understand a whip about it. And there are mm -hmm. so many different types of mental illness. Uh, let's start at 30,000 feet and then we'll zoom into your particular situation. Mental illness is, uh, is described these days as something that's not, quote, normal, but we don't know how to describe mm -hmm. normal anymore either. Uh, it can be things like um, uh, conditions that play out like hoarding or depression or um, uh, phobias or neuroses, things like this, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people uh, back in the day, if, if you really had problems with this, they had these things called mental asylums or sanitariums. I mean, there was no way to help people that had these types of issues. Today, we have mm -hmm. all kinds of programs and people you can talk to. Um, and that's good because, like I say, there's a lot of little nooks and crannies now to this mental illness situation. Uh, when did you first become aware that, that you might have uh, something, some sort of mental illness going mm -hmm. on? Uh, so it started around fifth or sixth grade, which is incredibly young for mental illness to start to present itself. Um, but I was always uh, just constantly feeling depressed as a young child. Um, and that progressed throughout middle school and high school into more serious depression. Um, so isolation, self-harm, addiction problems, stuff like that. Um, and then I got into college in my 20s. And that's when uh, more serious mental illness took place with more complex uh, symptoms. 
So, you so I've known. Sorry, as you grew older, the situation didn't stabilize or arrest itself or even self-heal. It actually got more complicated. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. Was, so is it because of um, you didn't know what was happening or you didn't get the proper help or was there no stopping this train once once it was out of the station? So I got help when I was 13 years old. Um, I attempted to take my life when I was 13 and uh, went into a treatment program at that time in my life. Um, I was taken off medication quite early after treatment, so I was never on medication growing up. Um, and at that time, I just had a diagnosis of depression and anxiety. Uh, and then I think genetics play a role and also life stressors. Um, I don't know if it was inevitable or not, but I believe that it was going to eventually happen uh, in my 20s. So, Okay. So let's continue the narrative, then we'll come back and talk about some, some things that might be able to help people that are listening to the audio version of this podcast or, or watching the video version of it. So you entered college with perhaps a little mm -hmm. basket of problems, and then things went from bad to worse. Is, is that how you describe it? Yeah, so I started experiencing more complex symptoms, I call them. Uh, when I was about 19 to 20 in my sophomore year of college. So I had racing thoughts, impulsivity, recklessness, um, a drinking problem. I was hanging around the wrong people, uh, spending a lot of money that I shouldn't be spending. Uh, so well, things that all, all kids in college go through that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think we don't notice things and play them off as just typical college kid behavior, typical teen behavior. Um, and then I started you're having... The top, extreme perhaps, yeah? What was that? Your, your behavior was over the top and perhaps extreme? Yeah, I had people actually telling me, people in my friendship circle, that um, they saw my behavior and think I should go... Uh, to a mental hospital or that they would take me to go get help. Um, I'm a good student, so I wanted to stay in school and I thought that would distract from my academics. So I told them, no, it's fine, I don't need help. Um, and it got to the point where I had a manic episode so bad that I got the police called on me and I was taken to a hospital for treatment after that episode. So the police usually get called in when something is illegal or perceived to be illegal that's how bad things go mm -hmm. um so actually police deal with mental health problems a lot so if someone's showing behavior that um is alarming to them um in my case i went to my therapy appointment that day and i wasn't speaking correctly um i was having this fear that people were out to get me i was obviously suicidal so that's when the police were called it wasn't that i was breaking the law or anything it was a, a call for my own safety okay so what happened next um so i was taken to a hospital in holland michigan um to the psychiatric ward there and i stayed there for about two weeks uh getting treatment and that's when i finally got my diagnosis of bipolar disorder um, and I walked out of the hospital with three diagnoses, actually, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, and uh, PTSD. 
I went to intensive therapy during the summer after I got out of the psychiatric ward. And now um, my team of medical professionals have just decided that it's bipolar disorder. Um, but diagnoses can change in the midst of all of it because I was under so much trauma and such bad symptoms that, you know, you can overdiagnose or misdiagnose the wrong thing. Well, I think, too, it's awful hard to dial this in. You know, if you go in for a physical and they do a CBC or a blood test, they have numbers and measurements that tell, you, tell them with a mm -hmm. certainty that you have a certain thing. But I don't think the diagnosis in the mental field works like this. They, they're guessing all the time. Yeah. You get this combo platter situation, which a lot of people do have. I imagine it gets mm -hmm. really hard to, to deliver a proper diagnosis. I'm glad to hear that two of the three uh, vanished or dissipated. Yeah. I was going to ask about yeah. PTSD. Usually that's related to some sort of an incident. So Yeah, so I went through a couple traumas when I was a child as well as um, in college. I had some sexual assault experiences and an abusive relationship. So I genuinely do think I did have PTSD and I had the symptoms to be diagnosed as that. But getting on medication and going to intense therapy, which I had never really gone to therapy in that degree before, I think that really helped me to the point where I'm no longer clinically di diagnosable as having PTSD. Okay. So um, you don't seem that old now. So we're going back maybe two years, three years tops. Uh, when I was diagnosed, or yeah. um, I was diagnosed actually in April of this year. Okay. So the mm -hmm. the wheels turning pretty quickly here, and you're seeing some progress. Uh, not that this mm -hmm. has been an overnight development. It's been happening since you were 13, or maybe even a little bit before that. Yeah. But you've had remarkable progress, yeah? Yeah, I attribute a lot of that to medication. Uh, bipolar patients, it's pretty vital that you take medication. Um, and I saw great progress through that. And also moving back into a stable environment outside of that uh, partying and college environment that I was in before that was very destructive to my mental health. Um, so I put a lot of work in uh, to be in the mind state that I am now. You know, it's only been around eight months since my diagnosis, but I can say I'm completely happy and a functioning human being now. That's fantastic. Welcome back. Thank I you. I say one time, Riley, that, that being bipolar isn't the problem. Being bipolar and not taking your proper medication is the problem. Is mm -hmm. all bipolar uh, disorder arrested or brought into reasonable a specter with meds, or is there some that just cannot be fixed or solved? Um, I personally don't know because I have only been on this journey with this diagnosis for less than a year. Um, for me, I think medication is very important, but I also know other people who don't take medication and just are very in tune with how they're feeling and go to therapy and do the right things and eat the right foods and, you know, have a support system that can get by without medication. It's really um, a person by person uh, case of when medication is needed. Yeah. Okay. And now you spend your time helping people and shining a light on this 
this kind of dark part of society that nobody really wants to talk about. You're, uh, you're on the speaking circuit. You're all over the country. Uh, tell us about what mm -hmm. the kids are like. Yeah, so I've been a public speaker for about two years now. Um, mental health organizations hire me all around the country to come speak to um, therapists and mental health professionals uh, to tell them a story from a perspective of a young person. So, you know, teen suicide is a big topic now because it's increasing year by year. Um, I think a lot of people in the field have an outdated mindset, and I come there uh, to show them a real-life perspective of someone who was a teenager not too long ago and did go through mental illness. Um, and then I also share my story to high schoolers across the country and uh, kids for them to get the message that maybe they're not the only one going through this. And I've gotten to meet so many amazing people through traveling the country and get to hear their stories. Well, it's wonderful. And thank you for being such a good role model for, for young people. What are you noticing when you meet these young people? You must meet quite a cast of characters, especially if, if they're yeah. troubled youth with all coming from all, you said you came from a fairly normal environment and I'll bet you yeah. some kids that don't come from anything resembling a normal home. What are you learning? What do you, can you, can you, can you put any patterns together about what's going on today or what we might, what we might do about yeah. it? So, most of the people I meet, it stems from loneliness or not feeling connected to other people. Um, when we don't feel like we have a proper social circle, when we don't feel connected to our family at home, um, when we don't see people in the news or on TV or anywhere that represents how we're feeling or how we look, um, we start to feel very, very lonely. Um, and teens now, I feel, are more disconnected than we ever have been. Uh, so I get a lot of those stories coming from teenagers that they just feel like they don't have anybody to reach out to. That's a very astute observation, and, and I think you're onto something. Why do you think today's, I mean, we live in the best educated society in the history of mm -hmm. civilization. We have more communication tools than ever before. Why do... Why do people, especially young people, feel so disconnected? I tried to examine that for myself as well because I felt incredibly lonely as a child. Um, and I, we live where we can pick up a cell phone and call anyone and that there's support groups and crisis hotlines. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think we're open enough about our communication. Uh, you know, you get home from school or for work and you don't want to ask your kids, you know, are you depressed? It's, we're so busy with doing our own lives and the things that we're supposed to be doing that we don't take the time to have valuable connection and communication with each other. That's a fascinating preset. I love it. I want to. I want to think about that, that. That we communicate. Of course, we communicate. We're texting, mm -hmm. emailing, Facebook, Instagram, all this stuff. We're communicating for sure, but maybe not communicating openly. Uh, mm -hmm. I've thought about this before. You know, it, the way I've explained it is, it, it's not just quantity; it's quality, right? It's not just how many. Yes, exactly. Tonight, it's what 
what's the quality of those text conversations? Was it all sports and weather? Was it, was it shallow stuff? Was it meaningful? Was, was it about true feelings? Was it about solving problems or complaining? There's a mm-hmm. large menu of things that we can talk about. It yeah. seems like we've really gone to a shallow level when we, when we talk to other people, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just so funny because we have so many methods of communication and we could be using them for good and to deepen our connection to each other. It's just uh, we haven't been taking the opportunity to do that. You're a little bit young to remember when television was invented, but when television <laughs> supplanted radio, radio used to be the big thing people gathered around in the living room. It was funny, I guess, because they'd, they'd all come into the living room and watch the radio. <laughs> you know, so they did. <laughs> and then the TV kind of took over for it. And the way that the manufacturers and the media helped everybody feel better about TVs coming into the home, because it was more noise, it was more invasive, it was, uh, it was this strange new thing is they said that TV could be used for good. It could be used for educational mm-hmm. purposes. <laughs> that, that was the last time that sentence was ever uttered because television turned out to be another form of vapid communication. You're seeing people on sitcoms solving all of their problems in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. In movies with very complex scenarios. Uh, the heroes in movies drinking like fish and they never seem to get drunk. In fact, they mm-hmm. shoot their guns more accurately once they're hammered. <laughs> yeah, it's we're definitely a more perception. Bullets, where people dodge yeah. bullets, you know, in, in uh, cop and cops and robbers movies, it's not any version of reality that, that's helping us out and understand each other better. You mentioned that when you made an attempt on your life, even though there were a lot of warning signs prior to that, that was the first time that you either sought help or people close to you made sure that you got help. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that suicide seems to be like this major signal, this major buoy, you know, this major beacon. Once the suicide attempt happens, everybody knows there's a problem. But until yeah. then, you hear people interviewed in the media, oh, he seemed like a regular guy. How could she have a problem? She's getting good grades. You mentioned that a couple times that somehow performing in school must mean that you're mentally stable. It's weird the conclusions that we come to. Why is suicide such the, such the headline besides the obvious reasons? Why do we wait for suicide before we really help somebody? Um, I think for me, I was incredibly talented at hiding the symptoms I was facing um, because there's a lot of shame that comes with suicide and mental illness. And uh, when you're in that point in your life where you're thinking about suicide, you don't want to burden other people. So you think it would be a burden to put all your problems on maybe your family members and it would just be easier uh, to keep it all to yourself and then decide to take your life. And it also goes, back again to we're not paying attention enough. I think some warning signs were definitely there for me. Um, I was more isolative. I dressed differently. I cut all my hair off. I stopped playing sports. There were warning signs, but I don't think we pay attention enough to them or we play them off once again as that's normal teen behavior. 
Yeah, and it's, um, hard, it's hard to disguise a suicide attempt. Yeah. Because there's something, yeah. even if you fail, the mark, I mean, the marks are there, or you had to go to the hospital, or, you know, there's a police report. It's just harder to hide that. It's interesting, too, to hear you talk about how people who think about committing suicide feel that they would somehow be less of a burden if they did away with themselves. Because ultimately, uh, your family has to deal with it. Everybody you knew has to deal with it. The burden actually increases. The, the people thinking forever, I, I, I could have done something to help her. The guilt, the years and years of guilt that people would have. So even, even thinking, for those of you watching that may, may be struggling with this, those of you thinking, you know, doing away with yourself is somehow going to solve the problem or be less of a burden. That in itself is a mental disability, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I felt so much guilt myself when I was going through all these problems. And I was sitting in the psychiatric ward, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm putting my parents through all this pain. I'm causing them thousands of dollars in medical bills. I'm burdening my family by now they have to tell people they have a child with mental illness. And it's such disturbed thinking and morphed thinking. And then you sit back once I'm now relatively stable and healthy and I sit back and I say, no, they would do that. All these things for me, they would visit me in the hospital every day. They would pay my hospital bills any day. But if I took my own life, they would never recover from that. They will recover from the episode I went through, but they will never, ever recover if I took my life. That's a fascinating, well, another fascinating observation that you don't hear much from younger people, people at all. I'm so glad that you, you're getting some clarity on, on how this really works. Yeah. Hmm. It's so funny because... Uh, because uh, mental instability or mental illness uh, has the person who is afflicted trying to make decisions about what's happening, but they're unable to do so because of the mental illness. I'm mm -hmm. a big mountain climbing fan. I don't climb mountains. I have to live vicariously through the people who do. Uh, but I know enough about mountain climbing to know that when you get into the high altitude, you suffer from something called cerebral edema. The brain actually starts to swell within the skull. And as you probably mm -hmm. know, there's no extra room in your, in your noggin. So it creates pressure. And the very first symptom is that your judgment is impaired. Mm -hmm. So here's these people on the mountain and they're looking for liquid oxygen so they can breathe. They actually look at a tank of oxygen that's full and to them it reads empty. They throw it on the ground. They are the least capable of, of making judgments about their own condition. And yet, yeah. when you're on the top of the mountain, you're the only person you have. Um, I wanted to talk about the, uh, the patterns with young people. You mentioned that this, this feeling of disconnected. What can we do about it? How can we help? I, mean, I, don't, I don't see any end to this thing. I just think no. it's going to get worse and worse. How can we help people understand that the value of nutritious conversation, of real dialogue, of, of what you call open communication versus non-open communication? Mm -hmm. So what I do with my work is a lot using technology and cell phones and media. Um, 
And when we go on Instagram or Twitter, it's mostly people highlighting the best parts of their days or the most perfect looking parts of themselves. And for me, I decided to step back from that and instead um, tell my story in a very raw and vulnerable way. Uh, And, you know, I write music about it and I write social media posts about it. And uh, I did my Netflix campaign, a social media campaign that was all on their Twitter and their Facebook and their Instagram. And I got so many people messaging me saying, you know, this is refreshing to look at because we go on our cell phones hours upon hours a day and we don't see anything we can relate to. Mm. Or we see someone that we're trying to compare ourselves to. Yeah. So that's one way I do it. And also trying to be more present with the people in my life. And because I work in the mental health field, I have an advantage. I know how to start conversation. Uh, I know the things to say. I know warning signs, maybe more so than the common people. But it's just so important to get this knowledge out to to the community, to the public, uh, so that they know the warning signs and they know what to look for. Um, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing some people taking your cue and, and posting about, you know, problems that they're having or challenges or um, um, things that used to be personal are now public. Uh, I'm not sure I'm a fan yet. And I, and I think mm-hmm. at some point of diminishing return, you know, with a, do you remember teeter-totters in, in high school in the playground where the teeter-totter goes in the other direction where public catharsis eventually starts giving us diminishing returns. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I'm having this problem today. Uh, oh, and because, because of this is the new me and I'm going to tell you all about all my flaws. Here's what's wrong with me on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We can lose the balance to that as well, can't we? Isn't life about, uh, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, or we're just having conversation. To me, life mm-hmm. is about, you know, I had a problem on Tuesday, but Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday sure were fantastic. It's a balance, isn't it? It definitely is. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say I go on social media and post about all my problems I'm having that week. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm more but, so. <laughs> but you don't, do you? No, I do not. I mostly post about my, if I have like a news interview, I'll uh, post about my story. But then I also give words of encouragement at the end. It's not me saying my life is so awful. I'm not going to do anything about it. It's me, you know, tagging resources or telling people this is what helped me or telling them, you know, this is where I went to group therapy if anyone's looking for it. trying to balance that positivity and what we can actively do to change our lifestyle compared to just uh, staying in a negative headspace. So there's definitely a fragile line between it. And I think there might even be an order to it that works, that works best. Uh, You know, I'm in the speaking business as well. And when I teach uh, people presentation skills and that sort of thing, I tell them, you know, a good presentation start maybe starts at the top in terms of mood and emotion and optimism. But if you're going to take them into a, a story with some stress or some, uh, you know, problems or challenges, that's the classic three act play model, right? Conflict is introduced mm-hmm. into the first act, right? And then we spend yeah. the rest of the play trying to dig out of the conflict. So a good talk, just like a good talk with yourself, 
maybe starts with, you know, I was having a good day until this crappy thing happened. And then this happened. And you never want to end the talk down here. You always no. have to, when I say talk, the keynote that you're getting paid to give, as well as the pep talk that you give to yourself. You know, I'm going to end mm -hmm. up on a high note whenever I can. Even if it's a temporary, temporary high note, I'll slay that dragon another day or I'll slay that dragon when I have time to focus on it. This idea of hope is really important in mental health, isn't it? Yeah, and I think a lot of times we stay in the conflict and we're not uh, getting up towards the resolution or the hope as you're talking about, yeah. You bet, you bet. So you've, uh, you've been doing a lot of speaking. We're going to end on a high note now, Riley. Okay. <laughs> um, you've been doing a lot of speaking. Have you had your first gig out of the country yet? Yeah, I spoke in Saskatchewan, Canada over the oh, summer. Canada doesn't count. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All my Canadian friends in Canada definitely counts. Isn't that the Yeah, best? they would be mad about that comment. I know. I'm going to get mail. Isn't it the best when somebody buys you an airplane ticket to go share with them? I mean, that is the best feeling in the world. It's, it's the best feeling in the world. And, you know, I started this journey when I was 18 years old, and I never would have guessed that I get to know, you know, travel the country on planes and talk to people about something I'm so inspired and passionate about. It's a surreal and crazy feeling and a crazy, crazy line of work. Well, you are delightful. I'm so happy for all your success. I'm sorry you had to go into the bucket there for a little while, and I, I hope you never have to go there again. I really Thank appreciate you. all you're doing to educate the rest of us on best practices for this, seeing the warning signs. Um, of course, if people get in trouble, we want them to get help right away, but even better than getting in trouble is, is preventing the trouble and watching, yeah, exactly. watching the warning signs. Where can people find out more about your services, book you as a speaker, that sort of thing? Uh, so you can book me or view more about my Netflix campaign or my news articles on my website. So that's RileyGenti.com, R-I-L-E-Y-J-U-N-T-T-I. RileyGenti.com, everybody. I'll put the link in the show notes as well so people can just click on it or copy paste it. So that would be good. Um, awesome. You are amazing. Thank you for all that you're doing. And uh, I hope we get a chance to meet one day, maybe on the speaking circuit. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Riley.